For Beyond Profit, a podcast of the ANA Center for Brand Purpose, I'm Ken Bollier. In this episode, I'm going to veer from the same old, same old. Instead of holding a conventional interview, I'm going to let my guest have a mic all to himself. It's my pleasure to welcome Vincent Stanley, Director of Philosophy at Patagonia, co-author of The Responsible Company. He is well known for working on one of the most iconic full-page ads of all time, which carried the headline, Don't Buy This Jacket. Of course, Patagonia needs little introduction. It is one of the most socially conscious and successful brands in the world. As part of its evolution, the company recently changed its purpose statement to, we're in the business to save our home planet. Vincent will explain what that purpose means for a company in business to sell clothes, how the company redefines responsible business in a time of ongoing social and ecological crisis, and the next steps in Patagonia's journey to make a difference. Vincent, the mic is yours. Thank you, Ken, for that warm introduction. I called the talk uh, Don't Buy This Jacket Part 2 because I wanted to talk to you a little bit about where Patagonia is today and what our plans are for the next 10 years. They're amazingly unchanged by COVID, despite the extraordinary effect that it's had on all of our lives. Patagonia is no exception. We have, nobody's been in the office uh, for about a year now. The warehouse has been operating at about uh, considerably diminished capacity for most of that time. Our stores are open by appointment only. But the fundamental condition of the world at the time COVID started and where it is now, we see as pretty similar. And we see our mission as basically unchanged. But I wanted to go into some background because I think Don't Buy This Jacket, I chose that because it's an audience of advertisers. And a lot of people ask me, I was one of the co-authors, Rick Ridgway and I wrote the ad together. And a lot of people have asked us, how did you uh, come up with that campaign. And um, it always strikes us as a bit funny because it wasn't a campaign. I mean, the ad appeared once on uh, Black Friday uh, 2011 in the New York Times as a full-page ad, and we never ran it again. But it created a lot of comment. And to give you some idea of the origins, we had gone through a long history of gradually adopting a greater sense of responsibility for everything that's done in our name. And this was mostly, we, we stumbled into virtue. We, we discovered accidentally the harm that the cultivation of conventional cotton does. We discovered kind of on the fly what uh, neoprene, uh, the damage that it causes, the neoprene that we used in, in wetsuits. But gradually we started to uh, inquire. The more we learned, the more we realized we needed to change or we needed to do the research to find out what we could change. And in the early 2000s, we got really uh, enamored of the ideas of William McDonough of uh, cradle-to-cradle manufacturing and the idea that at the end of our product's life, they could be returned to us and uh, recycled and turned into something of equal value. So we made a commitment in 2005 uh, to accomplish this in five years. But we learned very early on that there's a reason the four R's, reduce, uh, repair, reuse, recycle. There's a reason that recycle comes last. When you make a product, particularly when you make a clothing product, it really requires attention to its entire life cycle, not just what happens at the end. A product really should be made to last for as long as possible because that environmental impact is very much influenced by the life of the product. It really should 
be able to be repaired. And we've kind of lost the capacity to do that in the industrial world to uh, repair anything smaller than a car. And it really should be in circulation. When we looked at the four R's, we had already determined, we had already set in motion this capacity to recycle all of our clothes. We actually went into our warehouse and increased our capacity to repair things. We hired uh, seamstresses, and every time we doubled our capacity to repair, we had to double it again because people really liked the idea of holding on to uh, their clothes. I think they, people who had worn our clothes in places they loved to go or doing things they loved to do really wanted to keep those clothes rather than get a new one. We really wanted to help keep clothes in circulation. I mean, a lot of clothes that are purchased never get out of the closet. People just end up not liking them or they change sizes or they no longer like red. And so much social and environmental energy goes into the creation of any product. It's a shame not to be able to use it for its full life. When we looked at all of this, the last R that we hadn't touched was reduce. And we thought about this and we thought, you know, how does a consumer products company tell its customers to buy less? We were also telling them to buy better and when they bought better to buy from us. But we were essentially saying reduce consumption. And that's when we came up with this arresting headline of don't buy this jacket had been used a couple of times before, but in very small, much smaller venues. But the purpose of the ad, after it got your attention by saying, don't buy this jacket, is we pointed out that the jacket that we featured, the R2, was actually one of the most benign products we made. It's made of 60% recycled polyester, which is as high as we knew how to go at that time without reducing performance. It's a product that lasts 10 or 15 years, really difficult to wear out. And at the end of its life, you can send it back to us and we can, we will gather it up with other garments and uh, send it to Japan, melt it down and extrude new polyester fiber of equal value to the value that we've collected. But we pointed out this same jacket that is relatively environmentally benign, also generates uh, 20 pounds of CO2, 24 times its weight. The manufacturing process does that. It, the manufacturing process requires enough water to meet the needs of a village for a single day for each garment produced. Every jacket in the process of sewing and making the fabric uses two th generates two-thirds its weight in waste. But what we pointed out, and it's still true in the clothing business, I think it's still true in industry, that almost nothing we make gives back to nature more than it takes. It takes from nature more than we know how to give back. There's an exception to this that we've learned in the past few years, and that is there are ways that we've learned by uh, experimenting in the food business that we can actually give back to nature more than. I give you an example. We formed a, a relationship. We have a little company called Patagonia Provisions, and uh, we formed a friendship with a man named Wes Jackson, who runs the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas. And his project for the past 50 years has been to bring the Great Plains back to health. Now, the Great Plains once had topsoil that was extraordinarily thick and deep and rich, left behind by the glaciers, pounded constantly by the hooves of the buffalo. And it made America the breadbasket of the world for a long time. But now that rich topsoil is down to about six inches of depth. The land is used primarily for growing uh, monocultures of soy, corn, and wheat. But West 
has had, we, he started to tell us about his work as an agronomist and that 20 years ago, he had developed a perennial wheatgrass called Kernza with roots that go 18 feet deep into the ground. And when you get roots going that deeply into the ground, what they do is they break up the dirt. And they actually create soil because the microbes and fungi that create living soil have a chance to, to propagate. And when you get soil this rich, not only does it require less inputs and even uh, organic fertilizers, much less water, grows, we think, not proven yet, more nutritious food. It also has the potential to sequester carbon at the same rate that the rainforests do in Amazonia. So we talked to, spoke to Wes and we said, you know, we'd really love to buy some of this Kernza. Where can, where can we get it? And he said, oh, you know, you can't get this stuff. He says, I, I can't persuade anyone to grow it. And we said, why not? And he says, well, I, the farmers tell me they can't grow what they can't sell. So that made sense. So what we did was we partnered with a brewery in Portland, Oregon, and we made a beer. Long root ale that used Kernza as an ingredient. Then we got the first 200 acres of Kernza planted in the world. And the beer has been successful. But we've also gotten some major cereal companies interested in the potential to use Kernza as an ingredient in their uh, products uh, because of the potential to do some carbon farming, because of the tremendous potential to create topsoil at a rate faster than nature can create. When we looked at the potential of regenerative organic agriculture, and we also looked at the urgency of the environmental crisis, we started to think about the mission statement that we had had for 20 years. And that mission statement for a long time had been our guiding star. It was build the best product, cause no unnecessary harm, use business to inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. I think every employee at Patagonia, we didn't know it by heart, but everybody knew every clause. And it really did serve as a guide to our work. Uh, the idea of always building a high quality product, of minimizing the harm we do, of really exploring where the problems were in production and how we could solve them. And then the idea of using our business to really talk to other businesses to inspire solutions. But cause no unnecessary harm didn't really admit the idea of doing positive good. And we had just discovered with regenerative agriculture that we could start to do that. And it also didn't take into account the urgency of what we had been calling the environmental crisis for 30 years. But that crisis was heating up. It's interesting, Pope Francis and his uh, encyclical on the environment came out in 2015, uh, referred to one big crisis with two faces, one that is both social and environmental. I think that's really true. I think we think that at Patagonia, that the social and the environmental have become so inextricably linked that you can't address one crisis without another. There's no question that the environmental crisis is uh, causing social problems, climate migration. It's exaggerating the problems of inequality, areas of drought, water shortages, uh, pollution. All of those affect the poor before they affect uh, people of means. We're also looking at the urgency of the crisis. It's not just the magnitude, which is great. Uh, we've been personally affected. I think in 2017, during the Thomas wildfires, California was uh, struck by three of the largest fires in history. 75% of our employees were displaced at one time or another, either by the danger of fire or 
the prevalence of smoke. This year, something like 14,000 lightning strikes in uh, 48 hours drove the uh, energy grid out of business and and the fire, the resulting fires uh, threatened hundreds of thousands of people. Just on a smaller example, uh, this year, those of you in the East have suffered the, the collapse of the polar vortex three times, uh, bringing record uh, cold and record snowfall to your areas. COVID itself is not the first example of, uh, of a virus-driven plague that we've experienced. We've it is mostly in the United States, but people in Asia have been uh, dealing with outbreaks of this, and people in Africa with the, uh, Ebola have been dealing with out outbreaks of new viruses for the last decade, and we're certain to have more to come. All of this forces us to become two things. One is we have to be more adaptable, but two, we also have to rethink our social license. If you're a business and you're operating in a time I wouldn't say that we're in perpetual crisis, but we're in chronic crisis. There are fewer moments or windows of normality open to us. It becomes incumbent on business to view ourselves really as a part of society as a whole and to look what our obligations are in conjunction with other parts of society, with government and with uh, civil society, with NGOs. We also have an economy that has worked really well for about a third of us, those of us who are educated, those of us who are trained. This economy for the past 15 or 20 years has hummed along and enriched our lives. But for about two thirds of the people who don't have a college education, their lives have not advanced. Their lives have become more difficult, more fragmented, less secure over the last 20 years. And as we imagine the world of the future, the world our children and grandchildren are going, it really becomes incumbent on us, one, not outlive the planetary limits, which will create more and more crises. And second, ensure a good living, good living conditions within planetary means for all of the people on the planet. We really do need every sector, but we also need business to be addressing these problems. Business is the sector that makes things. Business is the sector that provides the products that provide food, shelter, clothing for everyone around the world. We have a really strong role to play. We're also responsible for, I think, 90% um, of a product's environmental impact is at the design stage. There's not much individuals can do without the cooperation of business to actually reduce their own environmental footprints. It also poses for us a kind of it provides us, it poses very difficult conditions for us, but also really strong opportunities. And I want to talk a little bit about, I think, a shift in thinking at Patagonia over the past 10 years. I think probably 10 or 15 years ago, we would have talked about or we would have nodded our heads when other people said, okay, Patagonia is doing well and Patagonia is also doing good. And what are the compromises? Where, where are the trade-offs between making a profit and doing the right thing? But I think what we've learned over the past 10 years is that doesn't make a very good business model. Now, we're a privately held company with a really committed owners. We always did have the tendency to favor doing the right thing, taking the risk. And we had enough experience that when we, for instance, when we stopped using conventional cotton, had to raise the prices, had to limit the line, broke our connection to the global supply chain and had to re restitch it. When we did that, 
we had enough experience doing similar things that we said, okay, we know we can come back. We can get our margins back up. We can get our sales back up and we'll be stronger for it. We'll have a deeper connection to our customers. But still, I think we viewed environmental and social responsibility as essentially this compromise. And I think over the past 10 years, the change now is that it has become clear that the constraints we place on ourselves, particularly in the supply chain, both with labor practices and with the materials we use, those constraints actually drive innovation. We can't get lazy. We can't say, okay, we're going to make this product 5% more efficiently than we made it last year. We're constantly asking, okay, how do we get the water repellent that persists in the environment out of this product and get in something that performs better? We're constantly looking at, say, the problems of, of uh, fleece shedding, get into municipal water systems and end up in the stomach of birds. We can never rest, but the fact that we're not resting also so brings us to innovations in product or in processes or in approaches to the customer that actually now drive our business. I want to go back a little bit to the don't buy this jacket ad. It feels like a long time ago. And I remember when we came out with the ad, there were a couple of things. One was uh, some, an employee came to me and said, we need a metric for this ad. <laughs> For its success. And I, I laughed. I said, oh yeah, we're telling people not to buy our stuff. So what is our metric for success? I thought about it for a minute and I, I told him, I said, okay, here's the deal. If after three weeks, the R2 jacket has increased in sales, we failed because we're greenwashing. But on the other hand, after three weeks, that jacket goes experiences a decline in sales. We're being martyrs, and that's no good either. We want to be in business for the next hundred years. So if the sales are exactly the same, we've accomplished our aims. And that turned out to be true. We did very well that year overall, but the sales of that product neither declined nor advanced. But there's another story I wanted to tell, because I think a lot of people look at Patagonia and they say, okay, Patagonia is privately held. It's a maverick company. It does things other companies don't do. And so how do we see ourselves in that picture? How is it possible for publicly traded companies, for instance, to accept social and environmental responsibilities to the same degree. A few years ago, the Danone, which is a French company, it's Evian Water, uh, Dan and Yogurt, several baby food lines, 30 billion euros in sales, 100,000 employees, made its U.S. subsidiary a B Corp, a benefit corporation, which means that Danone North America, it's a $6 billion a year company, audits its practices every two years, submits to an audit that evaluates its effect on all of its stakeholders from employees to customers to communities it operates in to the natural world and also to financial health. And Emmanuel Faber, when he announced that Danone North America had become a B Corp and that he was going to make the entire corporation a B Corp, that he had been first inspired to go down this route by the Don't Buy This Jacket ad because he says it taught him that you could appeal to customers on the basis of values as well as instincts. And so just in closing, I think, you know, manufacturing advertising has always been or has long been referred to as the manufacturer of desire. And I think it still is. But I think we have to look at the whole range of desire. And one of the things that people desire is a livable world and also a world that they believe in, um, a world that they want to raise their kids to live in. And I would just close with that.
the business that we want to build for the next 10 or 15 years is based on this idea of taking responsibility to the next level, which is to be regenerative, to give back to society and nature as much as we take. So thank you for listening. Vincent, thanks so much for offering that fantastic perspective on Patagonia, and I do wish you all the best. Until next time, thanks for listening.